This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. For new episodes every Thursday, just tap or click subscribe. This week we're tucking into a second helping of food history as part of our Feasts Through History series. This series is brought to you by Coat at Home, who offer a wide range of luxury chilled meals and French wines delivered direct to your door from the kitchens of the Coat Brasserie restaurants. After discussing Roman feasts at Lullingston Roman Villa in our last episode, we're now switching our attention to a medieval feast that took place in the 13th century. And the venue was Stokesay Castle in Shropshire in the West Midlands. With us now to talk about who was hosting, what they ate and drank, and who was invited, are our two invited guests for this episode. Hi, I'm Cameron Moffat and I am the curator for collections in the West Midlands. And hi, I'm Louise Bartlett. I'm the senior properties curator for the West Territory of English Heritage. To help people understand the place we're talking about, what can you tell us about Stokesay Castle, Louise? Well, Stokesay was one of the first fortified manor houses in England. And what that means is that whilst it is called a castle, its military appearance is superficial. It wasn't really for defence. It provided status and security. So security for things that were kept there, so money and valuables, rather than being in the place of defences for possible attacks. From this time period, we're looking at the late 13th century, much fortification that was added to buildings was really for show. And Stokesay remains today as one of the finest and most complete late 13th century fortified manor houses in England or Wales. The timbers in the undercroft, which is like a cellar space, the earliest ones have been, we've, they've been dated by tree ring dating to 1262. But nearly all of the standing structure that we see today dates from the 1280s and 90s. And again, we know this from tree ring dating that has taken place there. And the building at Stokesay really began in around 1285. And we know from carpenter's marks in the North Tower, the hall and the solar show that these buildings were all built at the same time and probably also overseen by the same carpenter. That's remarkable, isn't it? Yes. Can you describe to our listeners how it appears now compared to the 1200s? Because obviously we're talking about a particular time period with regard to the food and drink aspect. Sure. So what you can see today at Stokesay was nearly all what would have been built in the 1280s and early 1290s. It's such a significant survival it's really important particularly the timber aspect of the building there's a lot of timber at Stokesay the main exception to this is is the gatehouse which is what people will see when they first approach the castle the gatehouse is a later addition it's again a timber framed building it's striking with its yellow panels and intricate carved timber detailing and we know that this was built in 1640 so that's the main difference to what people would have seen in the medieval period But today, when you walk through the gatehouse into the castle courtyard, you'll see ahead of you the Great Hall. To the right, attached to this, is the North Tower, and to the left, the Solar and the South Tower. And that's what people would have seen, essentially, in the 1280s and 90s. We know there were a few extra buildings and 
in the courtyard and other additions which aren't there today. But it is just shows what a remarkable survival it is. So broadly speaking, as you're arriving and you come up to this gatehouse area with very distinctive wooden facade with that sort of lattice effect and that yellow panelling as you've just been describing it and from there you go further back in time so to speak and you start to see more stonework effectively. Yes that's right so the the main bulk of the buildings in front of you are stone with a a stone tile roof apart from the the very top of the north tower and again that's from the the 1280s and 90s period it's a the upper stories are jettied so they overhang into the moat and again they're remarkable survival of timber a timber structure from that period so that's the the top part of the castle but yes the rest of it is all built of stone. And it's, it's great that it's still there for us to enjoy. Now who built Stokesay Castle? It was built by a man named Lawrence of Ludlow. He was a merchant and one of the richest men in England at the time and he bought Stokesay in 1281. He died not that long afterwards, though. He died in 1294, so fairly soon after his building work at Stokesay had been completed. Although we think that some work may have continued after his death because we have records that his son bought large quantities of timber in 1302. But overall, what you can see really represents Lawrence's intentions and what, what it was that he wanted to build and to represent but his name kind of gives it away that his, his family home was in Ludlow and he'd lived there until Stokesay was completed. And it's likely that he'd inherited property in both Shrewsbury and Ludlow from his father. Right. This Lawrence of Ludlow, how did he acquire his wealth and influence? What was his line of business that enabled him to be able to afford to build his own castle? Well, he wasn't a self-made man, but he was the eldest son of a self-made man. His father was Nicholas of Ludlow, who made a fortune in the wool trade. And Nicholas was described as, quote, merchant to Edward I. So Lawrence carried on in his father's business, and he was exporting huge quantities of very valuable wool from the Welsh marches to the Low Countries, which was where the the center of the marketplace was based. But he also stepped into a business opportunity that had been created by the oppression and eventually the expulsion of the Jews from England in the 13th century. So this was before banks existed in England, and Lawrence was lending money on a large scale to the local local aristocracy in the Welsh marches, to important churchmen, and eventually to the king. And he was known in his own lifetime for being an extremely capable businessman and for being fantastically rich. So broadly speaking, Lawrence of Ludlow was a pretty important man. I mean, when you're lending money to the king, you have got a lot of money, I suppose. Would he be today the equivalent of sort of like a billionaire or something? I think he would He would have been, really. He was lending large sums of money to multiple people. And one of the things that's very interesting about this is that that money would have been stored at Stokesay in one of the uh, fortified basements of the towers, because as far as we can tell, he did not have a big house in London. He did his business at Stokesay, and that was where his own bank was, the Bank of Lawrence of Ludlow. I can now imagine that this chap probably liked to spend money as well as lend it, and in order to spend it, one would have to entertain guests and have people over and, you know, eat nice food. 
How important was this culture then of socialising and also dining to landowners such as Lawrence of Ludlow? Well, it was very important. Socialising and dining in these sort of set-piece events, this was how the aristocracy and the rich landowners developed and then maintained their contacts with each other. And these were the occasions where the elite got to show their own worth and their importance and their wealth on the table, as it were. And I think it would have been particularly important for a merchant like Lawrence, because as I've said, he was not part of the London court scene. So it was all invested in his very own upmarket, costly house. And as part of these events, there would have been the exchange of gifts. The whole process of the host binding his guests to him by giving expensive presents, it really was a very big undertaking. There was much more involved than just the meal, just the feast because of the distances that people were traveling, because all these elite people would have traveled with a whole coterie of attendants waiting on them. And then, of course, their horses. Uh, You could probably estimate twice as many horses as people coming. So it's a big deal. Louise described to us, obviously, the gatehouse and how this opens up into an area where you were then sort of within the castle walls. Uh, which is a very grand way of presenting to your guests. It's also got a particular utilitarian aspect because obviously you want to protect the money that you have stored there and protect your assets. But um, it's also part of the story of socialising and dining as well, isn't it? It's the way of sort of showing off your wealth. So could you talk a bit more the typical layout of a medieval manor house like Stoke, say, in this period? Yeah, so providing food and drink really had quite a lot to do with with how the buildings were laid out. The hall, what you would see when you came through the gatehouse, the great hall was really the focus of the household. Lots of activities taking place there. The service rooms, so the the pantry, the buttery, the kitchen, they would have been at one end on the the, the right-hand end as you look at the hall at Stokesay. And then the private living accommodation for the Lord would be the solar or the chambers at the other end of the hall. This is a common pattern of this period in terms of layout of buildings, and it's exactly what we see at Stokesay. Buildings may have developed piecemeal, like in this layout prior to the late 13th century that we're talking about, but they're starting to plan more consciously in terms of the architecture by this time. There was more emphasis on display and comfort. People were staying put in one place for longer periods of time. They weren't necessarily moving around their properties that they may have owned as they had done previously. And at Stokes, they say it very much conforms to this pattern. The 13th century Great Hall dominates the courtyard and it's where the Lord and his household would have eaten, taking their meals. This was its principal function, really. Mm. Um, it's a wide, open space. It's clearly lit. It's got huge windows. And it was we can see it was designed to impress his guests. At Stokes, it has a splendid cruck roof and a crux are pairs of, of long curved timbers that come from the roof right down to the floor level, which meant you could have a very wide building. And at Stokes, say there are three large windows on either side. And we think the upper parts would have been glazed and again, a display of, of wealth at that time and the lower levels covered with shutters. I mentioned the, the pantry and, and the buttery. There probably would have been a, a timber screen across the hall at the right-hand end, the north end. It's no longer there at Stokesay today, and this is closest to where the stairs are that go up to the top of the north tower. But today there's a, there's a door in that, in that north wall, which you can still go down into the basement area, and the stairs lead down into what was probably the buttery. 
Now, the buttery was not for storing butter, but where ale was stored in butts, hence the name buttery. Oh, I uh, see. The pantry adjoining it for bread, for pan from the French. Ah. So you've got the pantry for bread, buttery for ale, and sometimes wine, or if there's a cellar as well, wine would have been in, in the cellar. And these were basement areas. They're on the north side. So they're naturally cool and they don't get much light. So perfect for storing provisions such as ale and bread, which didn't have a very long shelf life. They needed to be somewhere that was easily accessible that they could get to during the meals and that was just off the hall and that weren't put into like long-term storage or anything because they have this short shelf life at the time. The kitchen would have been alongside these buildings, but at Stokes Day, unfortunately, it has been lost. I mentioned earlier that we know that there were some later structures and buildings attached to the castle or in the courtyard. We got later illustrations and, and engravings that show a, a timber building just off the North Tower at an angle to it, which we think was the kitchen at Stokes Day. It's probably not medieval, but it's likely to be in the same location as where the medieval kitchen would have been. So you've got the whole range of those kind of service buildings all in one area, very close to the hall to carry the food through. And the kitchen quite often was detached in the medieval period, a detached building. It was a hot, smoky place and obviously huge risk of fire potentially. So we often see at other sites that it was in a detached building, maybe covered, linked by a covered walkway or similar. But from the later illustrations do show it was it was attached at Stokes A. So if you're visiting Stokes A today, do we know exactly where the kitchen would have been? Yeah, we think so. So as you as you come through the gatehouse and you're looking directly towards you at, at the hall and the North Tower, it was a, a kind of an offshoot of, of that. So it would have been in front of you, essentially, as, as you looked at the hall. And from the engraving show that it was there, we think, until the early 19th century. OK, fascinating. Well, let's imagine then that we're stepping back into the 1290s. We've just arrived at the castle for a lavish meal, all three of us. How would the dining space and table have been arranged in that great hall? Well, feasting at a castle in in this time period was a formal kind of almost ceremonial affair. You would have end. We as guests would have entered the hall at the the south east door. So, as we're looking at the hall today, the door on the left hand side, so at the opposite end to where the kitchen and the service rooms would have been. As you entered, you would have seen a long table set across the width of the hall, probably between the first pair of full length windows. And it's likely that the table would have been set on a raised dais, a raised timber platform. The walls may have been decorated maybe with with tapestries. It would have, say, been a space to display status and wealth. Further tables for the servants and other officers would then stretch down the hall parallel to the wall. So you've got a U-shape. You've got the top table and then the two tables coming down in a U-shape. And people would be seated in order of rank. And they would have sat on stools, forms, kind of simple furnishings, simple benches that could easily be moved because the hall was a multifunctional space. So if they wanted to use it afterwards for other entertainments and other purposes, they needed furniture that could be moved out of the way to use the hall in another way. And any kind of other display would have been through things like the soft furnishings, the tapestries and any plate perhaps on the table. At Stokesay, we've got the remains of an octagonal stone hearth. So the hall would have been heated by a central hearth or brazier quite often in this period. And at Stokesay, we've got the kind of the outline of, of where that would have stood in the centre of the hall. So the, it would have sat in front of the main long table that went across the top table and with a, an opening, a hole in the roof to let the smoke out. I noticed you said there that the servants would be sitting at particular tables in the arrangement. 
would they have eaten at the same time as the distinguished guests? Potentially. We know from some records that, for example, groups of grooms, so the people that looked after the horses would have eaten together and people were often grouped together in their ranks. So the grooms would have sat together and the different kind of trades, if you like, would have sat together. There may, however, have been more than one sitting at the table. So whilst there may have been occasions when certain other kind of groups and servants would have been invited in, there may have been a second sitting. Let's talk about then how the drinks would have been served at the table. What sort of beverages are available in the 1290s at Stokesay? Well, a great deal of wine would have been provided. This was all imported from the continent at that date. There would have been plenty of ale because everybody made ale. It was made in-house and that was what people drank every day. But for large-scale occasions, you always had the option of buying in additional supplies from local producers, say, in Ludlow. But uh, Charles, you and I have in the past talked about mead and the evidence for mead making in Britain going back much earlier than the 13th century. Mm. Uh, And as it happens, Stokesay is mentioned in Doomsday Book as having a beekeeper, which implies multiple hives and implies that it's a good area for keeping bees. So I would suggest that uh, honey has always been produced there and that where there is honey, there will always be mead. And because mead is so much stronger than ale, this was always a high status drink, though wine, of course, was always the top drink. Yes, and I think I need reminding that about the mead because we did drink a bit, didn't we, Cameron, during that episode? Um, yes, we we <laughs> did drink quite a bit, yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, mead, does it take longer to sort of produce than ale would? And that's oh, why yes. it's more ale, expensive? Ale is very quick to make and then very quick to go off. So you have to be constantly making ale for next week and then next week you make ale for the week after and it doesn't really at that date it doesn't have any storage properties you can't keep it you make it you drink it and that's what people were drinking generally because they were not drinking water once the water has been used to make ale the various toxins in the water have been worked through the system so that was really people were drinking ale breakfast and dinner Mm. and it was very low alcohol wasn't it it was very low alcohol i mean they were drinking in general for the calories and for the hydration now with the distinguished guests were being served our drinks we're sitting at one of these tables probably the high table near the fire obviously because it's perhaps winter when we've arrived and the grooms might be having dinner with us or they might not they might be coming in a little bit later but if the grooms are looking after our horses How would they have been looked after when we've arrived? Stabling was important. And though we don't know where the stables are at um, Stokesy, you can look at other sites like Goodrich in the region and see that there they have crammed an amazing floor area devoted to the stabling of horses into a relatively small castle. So at Stokesy, we know that there was a lot of stabling available. We just don't know exactly where it was because there have been virtually no excavations at Stokesy. Stokesy is so untouched. It's one of those sites that we have never been able to supplement our our knowledge of through excavation because everyone wants to leave it undisturbed. I understand, Cameron, that you've got some interesting documentary evidence of a particular distinguished guest visiting Stokesay Castle around the 1290s. Who is this? 
this was the Bishop of Swinfield, who was the Bishop of Hereford, and he went on a regional tour that included Stokesay, because the uh, Diocese of Hereford covers a, a huge area. So in April of 1291, he and his household team went on a tour, and they called in at Stokesay. And though we don't know specifically that they came to Stokesay Castle, that was the only big and important place in the parish of Stokesay that he could have gone to. So it's a fair assumption. So if we assume that he did visit, what would be the purpose of Bishop Swinfield's visit? In part, tours like this are just a means of keeping in touch with the parishioners and with the important people out out in the parishes. But the bishop would have been expected, as well as attending feasts, that he would have held services. And I think given that 1291 is exactly the date at which Lawrence of Ludlow is moving into his new stately home at Stokesay, getting himself all set up, I think it's very likely that he wanted the bishop to give an inaugural service at the manorial church, which is in fact right next door to Stokesay Castle. Ah, very nice. Okay. And that is a great way of introducing the bishop to the local people and for Lawrence to meet him himself, develop a relationship, host him, discuss matters of the church, matters of politics, money matters, all these sorts of things, I suppose. Yes, important people rubbing shoulders, yes. So we assume that the bishop visited. Do we know what food was served? Well, one of the bishop's assistants, his household chaplain, made an account of what the bishop paid for during his visit to Stokesy, what food. And because this is a financial account rather than a descriptive account, it's simply a list. And this was a list of the food that the bishop chose to pay cash for as part of the feasting. So the list includes a lot of bread, a great deal of wine. I think it's something like 56 pints of wine and a lot of meat. So we are looking at multiple pigs, beef and pork, calves, kids, fowl. And then funnily enough, tacked on at the end, there are items for the horses so that a couple of local people have chipped in, possibly thinking they were not going to be at the feast, but they would get some kudos from this. Somebody has paid for hay for the horses and the Lord Abbot of Holmond has contributed money to pay for bushels of oats for 35 horses. But just the food for the people, what we are seeing here is we're seeing alcohol and we're seeing meat, and we're seeing very high-status meat. We're seeing animals that were slaughtered when they were young, which is a very sort of profligate use of livestock. And we are also seeing that there is a provision built in there for excess, which will go for alms. There's way more bread than anybody could have eaten, and a lot of that would have gone to people who had come to seek alms at the gate. And probably some of the wine would have gone to be used as the sacrament in any of these services that the bishop might have held. What's the value of this uh, menu, this shopping list, effectively? Oh, no, you're, you're not going to ask me to uh, <laughs> to convert it into modern sums, are you? Because I'm not sure I can do that. No, The but, total um... is, okay, the total offered is 16 shillings and two pence. Do we have any idea of how many 
mouths that would feed? Well, all right. I think if they are provisioning for 35 horses, say there are twice as many horses as the people visiting, plus you've got people in the household, I would imagine there must have been 25 people at the feast, something like that. Well, it's a big old feast, I, I would say. Um, it sounds like they ate well. There's no real mention of vegetables. It's very meat-heavy. It's very meat-heavy. That is in part because it's a feast, and so the interest is in showing that you are eating huge amounts of, of this very valuable foodstuff. But vegetables were not a huge part of the medieval diet, and they were used as much as anything for flavoring onions, garlic, things like that, just to give things a bit of oomph and in sauces. A lot of the vegetables that we eat nowadays were brought to this country after the medieval period, and they just weren't an option. Okay. Not great vegetable eaters in the medieval period, no. No, but they had the bread to mop it up with as well, I suppose. They did. Lots of bread. You know, you see the hierarchy everywhere in, in, in the uh, elite people eating the nicest food and then it sort of goes trickling down the system. So you know that the people at the top table were all eating the whitest bread and the people at the bottom table and the people waiting for alms at the gate were all getting the very, very coarse brown bread. And when you say alms, A-L-M-S, what is that meaning exactly? alms for the poor, it's sort of built into medieval life that whatever you have, a proportion of that needs to go to sustain the poor. And so part of every feast was the transferal of foodstuffs down the chain, ending up with the poor standing at the gate begging for charity. You've described there quite the sort of spectrum of food enjoyment and, well, just general social capital, really. How much food you can buy is, and what you can enjoy is down to how much you make, whether you're a landowner, this sort of thing. Are there any other foods beyond those on the menu that a typical nobleman or wealthy landowner might have served to special guests? Yes. We know that Lawrence was at this point getting himself set up on his new estate. And at that period, he had also acquired the right of free warren over some local pieces of land, which allowed hunting for game. And so, you know, he had the potential to have included game in the feast. And he was at that very time having fish ponds constructed at Stokesy. And even if those hadn't been quite ready, there would certainly have been fish available from the nearby River Oni. But what we don't see here is how all this food was prepared. The feast probably consisted of three courses, but they're not the courses that we have now of starter, main, and dessert. So in the medieval period, for a feast, each course consisted of many dishes, and each one ended with something light and maybe a bit sweet, like a custard tart, to sort of indicate that that was the end of that course. And throughout, there was a progression to the fancier, more expensive foods at the end of a feast. And courses might be based on how the meat in elements of that course was cooked. So a first course could be based on boiled meats, and then a second course fancier based on roast meats, and then a final course on fried meats as the butter and the lard used for the frying made those the most expensive dishes. 
Ah, that's really interesting. Lots of different ways of cooking different meats, which I suppose gives that effect. <laughs> you're, you're eating something different in a way, even if it is mm. the same meat. It's just been treated differently. Mm-hmm. I like the fact they ended up with frying as well. That's really quite decadent, isn't it? That's sort of, I can imagine the, um, the fingers being licked after whatever meat they've yeah. eaten at the time. That's really, uh, that's making me hungry, actually. Um, <laughs> what were the politics, though? What was discussed at the dining table and, and also the rules of etiquette at a grand feast at Stokesay Castle? Well, as Louise has described, you have the, the high table up at the top end of the, of the hall. This was where Lawrence and his immediates would have sat and the people that he wanted to ensure that he got in best with. And then it all trickled down from there. So those were the people who were served first and served the best things and served on the silver or the silver gilt dishes and drinking out of glass and silver goblets. And then progressively, what is on the table and what you are eating off and out of, it gets more and more down market as you go down the table. And and, and by the far end, you might be drinking out of ceramic cups and um, eating off a a, a wooden plate. Yes, because we covered on a previous podcast with uh, Will Wyeth, one of our other historians, that um, were there actually any um, ceramic plates at this time, anything made out of pottery that you would eat off? Or wasn't it actually a piece of bread that you'd have in front of you where the food would then be placed on top of? Isn't that right? Yes, that's right. You have a, a, a trencher made out of bread. And the food is served onto the trencher, though the trencher itself is sitting on some kind of receptacle, some kind of container. And if you are Lawrence de Ludlow, it's going to be a silver dish. And further down the table, it'll be something else. And you would eat your food off of this. But then all the juices from your meat soak into the trencher, making it a nicer gift to be received by the uh, people waiting for alms outside the gate. Would you actually finish off this moist, uh, soaked, uh, meat-soaked piece of bread? Oh, you wouldn't. Oh, no, that was very bad form. You didn't eat your trencher. You left it untouched, but soaked in meat juices to be given further down the table or to the people seeking alms. That's really different from some other modern eating habits where perhaps if you've got some crusty bread, you might sort of mop your sauce with oh, your yeah. crusty bread, might, mightn't you? But mm. in this period, no, 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 that's... Very wrong. No, 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 no. Very bad form. Mm. Other guests then that Lawrence would have entertained at Stokesay Castle during his lifetime. We've talked about Bishop Swinfield and his entourage, I suppose. But what are the other sorts of people that he would have as distinguished guests? Well, we don't know specifically because there are no surviving records from Lawrence or, or, or his immediate household. But as it seems that he didn't have a big townhouse in London, though he had an office there, I think he really was forcing people to come to him at Stokesy. Not the king, of course, but all those other people who wanted to borrow money from him, they had to come to Stokesy and negotiate with Lawrence on his terms. And certainly, you know, all the local aristocracy from the Welsh marches, they were always borrowing money off of him. And I dare say there were a lot of them hanging around waiting for five minutes of Lawrence's time at Stokesy. Do you think it would have all been down to, you know, a visit being linked to wanting to borrow? Do you think it was always that? Or do you think it would have been just social as well and and meeting up with other people who are on his level? 
It's really hard to say this meant that many hundred years after the fact. And I'm sure I'm sure that both went on. But historically, Lawrence, he is Mr. Business. He has been described as the merchant of the century. And I think business was always top of his mind. It's really interesting that because, uh, I mean, obviously these days, if you're applying for a loan or anything, you can just do it online. But it wasn't that long ago where you'd actually have to walk into a bank or you're and actually ask to speak to the bank manager and ask for lending. With this, you're sort of asking the most powerful man in the area if you can borrow some money. And you're also probably having to go and dine with him and present some food to him as part of that business exchange, I suppose. Yes, yes. It, it was a very elaborate procedure and there was very much back and forth and, and everybody making sure they weren't on the back foot and they hadn't accepted too much in the way of, of gratuities and presents without giving something back. Everybody trying to keep a balance. And there's a little bit of that still, I think, in today's culture, where if you're going to somebody's house for an evening meal, a dinner party... Most guests will bring a bottle of wine. Perhaps one will bring, I don't know, some after eight mints. Uh, there are other brands available, of course. Um, <laughs> and um, Or chocolates or liqueurs or cheese or something like that. We still sort of have this, this offering, despite the fact that we are the honoured guests. I think that still exists. But obviously with Bishop Swinfield, he was bringing an awful lot to the table, literally. Yes, he was. Yes, yeah. Yes, this is absolutely true. You would not go to a dinner party without taking something long. Or if you did, you'd sit there and feel a bit embarrassed and, and uh, like you had not done the right thing. Yeah, you have to sort of pay to sort of partake, really, even if you are just the guest and, and you even if you've travelled lots of miles like Bishop uh, Swinfield would have done. So is it possible for visitors to these days enjoy a bite to eat a bit like uh, they would have done if they were guests of Lawrence of Ludlow at Stokesay Castle hundreds of years ago and, and to do that today? Yes there's uh, a lovely tea room at Stokesay which is in a lovely little cottage building in, in the car park where visitors can get sandwiches and like refreshments using local Shropshire produce. Do you have any particular favourites on the uh, on the menu that uh, is currently served at Stokesay Castle when you come up and do visits occasionally for your work. All right, I have one to chip in. <laughs> I have, English Heritage has a new line of crisps, and one of them is truffle flavored. I met this by accident when I was at a site, and I wasn't expecting to be there for lunch, and the meeting ran on a long time, and I was just desperate for something to eat, and I grabbed this bag of crisps. These are the nicest crisps. <laughs> so I heartily recommend the English Heritage truffle-flavoured crisps as part of a larger meal. <laughs> of course, and a bit of fruit and veg at some point during the day as well, I'm sure. <laughs> Knocked back with some water to keep it all healthy. Louise, do you have any favourite beverages or snacks or, or main meals that uh, are served at Stokesay? I'm always partial to a piece of cake and uh, they usually have a lovely selection of cakes and tray bakes and things. So that would normally always be my choice from the tea room. So lastly, Cameron and Louise, what is the best way for people to enjoy Stokesay Castle and also perhaps get a cup of tea, slice of cake after their visits this season? 
during the summer, Stokes A is open seven days a week and people can come along and, and enjoy the tea room whilst the castle is open. And it's open up until the end of October and then throughout the winter, open Saturdays and Sundays, back open again, more fully in the spring. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. This episode has been delivered to you in partnership with Coat at Home. To order your own feast that will go down in history and get a free bottle of French red or white wine with your first order over £60, go to coatathome.co.uk and use the promo code EH-RED or EH-WHITE at checkout. Next week, we're serving up another episode in our Ask the Expert series, covering everything you wanted to know about the Romans. Claudius may have used some of the kind of the external politics of the various British kingdoms as a pretext for invasion. And this ultimately is going to lead to about 350 years of Roman rule. Thanks for listening. See you next time.